Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Jake Charles, lecturing fellow at Duke Law and executive director of the Center for Firearms Law. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and scholarly conferences. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, and thank you all for being here today. My name is Jake Charles, and I'm the executive director of the Center for Firearms Law here at Duke Law School. We are really glad to be able to host this important discussion on race, policing, and guns. Even a casual glance at the evening news reminds us of the intersection among violence, both public and private, racism, and the ubiquity of of firearms in the United States. The ongoing national conversations around race and policing in America are grappling anew with the role of guns in these systems and institutions. We're fortunate to be joined today by several distinguished experts to help us unpack these issues in a conversation this afternoon. Before introducing the panelists, let me say a few words about the format for today. For the first 30 to 45 minutes, I'll be asking the panelists questions, and then at the end, we'll have a time for a moderated Q&A. So please, if you do have any questions that come up in the panelists' discussion or in the first part of the conversation, pop those questions into the Q&A box at the bottom there. You can ask those questions at any time. You don't have to wait till the end to ask them. You can ask them anonymously if you want to remain anonymous. You can ask a question to a particular panelist or you can ask a question for the panel as a whole. We'll take as many of those as we have time for at the end. I also want to thank the Duke Law American Constitution Society and Duke Law Federal Society for co-sponsoring today's event. And just one more note is that today's discussion is being recorded. Okay, let me introduce the panelists for today. I will be asking them questions in the order I go through here. First, we have our very own Professor Daryl Miller. He's the Melvin G. Sim Professor of Law, Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, and Faculty Co-Director of the Center for Firearms Law. Next, we have Cami Chavis, Associate Provost for Academic Initiatives, Professor of Law, and Director of Criminal Justice Program at the Wake Forest University School of Law. Next, we have Stuart Schrader, Lecturer and Assistant Research Scientologist scientist in sociology at John Hopkins University, and Alice Ristrop, professor of law at the Brooklyn Law School. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. My first question is to you, Professor Miller. You've written recently about how calls to defund the police may end up being more harmful to the safety of Black Americans, at least if those calls are successful. Can you say a little bit about what led you to that conclusion Um, and maybe what guns have to do with that calculus. Sure. Uh, Thanks uh, for the question, and uh, thanks to all of you for participating and uh, to our uh, uh, guests as well as um, sponsors for this event. So um, I I think the the issue here about how guns are are related to this and the sort of defund the police is, as we've seen in um, places like Kenosha and others, um, that um, the desire for uh, policing um, uh, might in fact be um, somewhat insensitive to the fact that um, you have um, different sort of groups in a, a particular area. So I think one of the issues here is like if you end up defunding the police or in the most radical sense of abolishing the police, um, that is going to encourage um, individuals who are empowered by uh, many uh, jurisdictions that have fairly robust gun rights uh, to do the policing on their own, either at the invitation uh, of uh, some individuals within uh, the communities or on their own initiative. The uh, hypothetical that I give is something like uh, Atlanta. So, you know, Atlanta um, uh, had uh, some uh, protests about uh, policing there, uh, but if you ended up abolishing the Atlanta Police Department, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, for example, um, um, uh, predominantly white uh, individuals uh, wouldn't come into the city empowered by state law uh, to carry their own guns and act as uh, a self-proclaimed um, a security detail uh, for businesses or others within the uh, community, and that can be incredibly racially inflected. 
Um, and that's what I uh, uh, worry about with the idea that defund the police means abolish the police in an environment in which there are already a lot of guns and gun rights uh, as a baseline level. So let me then continuing on that theme, turn to you, Professor Chavis, and ask you, you know, your scholarship focuses, at least in part, on criminal justice reform and police accountability. What are some of the politically feasible ways that you think reformers should be working to address police violence, especially in what seem to be the increasing episodes of killing of Black Americans? Yes, hi. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. Um, I think that, uh, first of all, a couple of important points. Um, you know, we've seen just horrific instances of, of police uh, violence uh, lately, but for many Americans, particularly Black Americans, these scenes are nothing new. What's new uh, is just the ubiquitous nature of, uh, you know, we have police body-worn cameras now, we have uh, lots of uh, cell phone uh, bystander footage, so um, the activities of the police actually are becoming much more transparent. And it's difficult uh, for a, a lot of times when in the past, when we would see these instances, um, you know, we, we were able to have kind of a he said, she said with the, the officer receiving um, a lot of deference, right, for uh, what happened in a situation. So I think when I think of terms of what's politically feasible, Another thing that we have to take uh, into account uh, is the idea that um, that it's not, and you, you hear this, I, I almost, I hate to even say this, you know, the bad apple analogy, because that's so old and, and worn out, uh, the terminology, but what we what we mean by that uh, is that we have to look at law enforcement culture um, instead of individuals, and we need to think about uh, law enforcement culture uh, promotes uh, or tolerates or encourages um, certain uh, behaviors in, in police officers. So if we take those two things, that we, we need more transparency around what's actually happening, and we need to address the culture, there are a lot of different ways that we can address the culture. And I could talk more about some of those ways uh, as, we, as we go along, um, but I, I also, I, I can't uh, overemphasize the need to be more transparent and we need to keep better records. Uh, we need to have uh, national databases that help us uh, understand what's happening in different parts of the country so we can evaluate what practices uh, are working. Um, but of course, we need to take um, a look at our use of force uh, standards and what's, um, what is, is appropriate uh, or not. It, it is unfortunate that we have certain instances of, um, you know, what someone selling loose cigarettes in the case of Eric Garner or, um, or uh, in the case of George Floyd, some allegation of, of counterfeit. And you have armed uh, first responders uh, coming to, to these um, uh, instances. And so we really have to take a look at at that and at the substantive criminal law that allows those types of interactions uh, to happen. So uh, in your question is, is that it's, it's not a, a simple uh, fix and there are lots of different ways that we can address it. Great, thanks so much. Um, and turning to you, Professor Schrader, maybe stepping back and thinking about how we got to, at least part of the story of how we got here. So in your book, Badges Without Borders, you chronicle the ways that the American police forces have become militarized over the last 60 or so years. And you note an emphasis on racial control in policing. Can you talk about the roots of that militarization and maybe what it has looked like, especially with regards to domestic police firepower? Sure, thanks. I would argue that the militarization of policing has been occurring since the outset of the 20th century, precisely through the blurring of colonial racialized social control and domestic racialized social control. Many of the most prominent police reformers and experts in the 20th century had military backgrounds. 
um, had experience in wartime and often made reference to war in their work. Um, the most famous among them would be a figure like August Vollmer, who's kind of considered the grandfather of American policing. And so when he said mili militarize or, or make police more like the military, you know, he meant standardizing procedures, he meant adopting rigorous chain of command, stuff like that, um, intensifying training. And, and, and a key aspect of intensifying training was uh, marksmanship training. So the, the military experience of marksmanship training filtered into policing throughout the 20th century. And it came to be that, that the, the leaders of, of the policing profession in the middle of the 20th century, who I look at in my book, who become this kind of globe-traveling, globe-trotting uh, cohort of experts, um, they're, they're really into marksmanship training. They, they uh, go into shooting competitions and, and they, they often kind of trade stories with each other about their prowess at, at shooting. And this translates into both um, increased domestic uh, training of, of, of police in, in marksmanship, as well as training of foreign police in marksmanship, oftentimes bringing them to the US to, to uh, attend training um, uh, facilities. Ultimately, this kind of um, obsession with marksmanship training and an obsession with guns uh, really increases the, the uh, belief among police experts that new types of guns and new, new types of weapons, the adoption of military-style weapons, should become more regularized. And so we see the, the adoption of military-style weapons frequently after um, wars, all the way going back to World War II. There's um, the, the, you know, the FBI is facilitating the transfer of surplus war materials into the hands of police. This happens again after the war in Vietnam and certainly is still happening to this day, as we know. Um, and so my point is that many of the leading police experts really have a very strong interest in guns. They collect guns. They uh, are, are very much interested in firearms training. And so ultimately what that leads me to, to hypothesize is that we shouldn't think of the police interest in firearms as separate from the civilian or public interest in firearms. In fact, they're, they're deeply intertwined. And if anything, the, the police interest in firearms in the 20th century um, really uh, precedes the, the much more um, expansive interpretation of, of the Second Amendment and the, the acti activism around gun rights that guns gun rights that begins um, more more intensely in the 1970s. Thanks very much. And so Professor Ristroff, a question for you maybe shifting the terrain a little bit from our focus on or at least our discussion on public violence. And I want to ask you, some of your scholarship in a, in a forthcoming book talk about violence in the way that the law relies on and fosters, but at the same time seeks to restrain violence. Since you're both a law professor and a political theorist, I wanted to ask about kind of the connection here. How do we think about the state's monopoly on the legitimate use of violence when we have laws like expansive citizen arrest laws or expansive stand-your-ground laws? Is it still coherent to talk about a state having or being what the entity that has a legitimate use, a, legit, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I wonder whether the United States is organized as a, um, uh, a state with um, uh, with sort of public uh, a public control a public monopoly on legitimate violence. Um, that that phrase I mean it comes from Max Weber and it is even beyond you know one particular thinker or theorist. It's a, a very common understanding of um, what sort of constitutes the modern state. How we define a modern state. Um, it's um, maybe not necessarily that particular language, but similar language is used by, um, for example, political scientists and economists who, when sort of tracking um, what states have been more stable and which ones less so, 
um, there's some work that uses the term violence specialists um, to refer, say, to the military or to police forces. Um, uh, and, and a similar kind of suggestion that, um, I, you know, in order for a state to be stable and to operate, um, the power to do violence, the power to do lawful, legitimate, you know, violence that is recognized and accepted by the public as legitimate, it needs to be concentrated in, um, in public officials. Um, and I know that, um, I think uh, you know some Second Amendment uh, scholars or uh, commentators have questioned whether, um, given the Second Amendment, you know whether the United States is organized on that model. So I think that you know you could plausibly say that um, uh, um, there in the Bill of Rights is kind of a, a rejection of, of that model. I don't know that it's conclusive. Um, you mentioned. Uh, citizens' arrests, um, uh, or maybe our stand-your-ground laws. I think there is a way in which you could look at various parts of um, American law that do seem to recognize um, uh, private uh, acts of violence as legitimate. Um, there's a way that you could look at them and try to reconcile them uh, with the idea that the state is a monopoly of leg legitimate violence by saying, you know, these are sort of very isolated exceptions where um, individuals are permitted to use violence in the same circumstances that public officials would be able to. Um, you know, if a police officer were there and could use violence to defend you, and then the police officer just isn't there in time, okay, well, you can use violence to, um, to defend yourself. Um, so there, there is, I think, you know, a, an argument um, that, um, uh, uh, some degree of acts, some, some, some degree of acts of private violence are nonetheless compatible with this understanding of the modern state because the uh, private violence is sufficiently contained, it's sufficiently um, regulated and um, uh, uh, sort of kept to circumstances where a public official would have, would have the power to use violence if they were there in that, um, in that moment. Um, I um, don't know if that account is persuasive with respect to um, where we are in the United States right now, because um, I do think uh, there's a, you know, kind of strong uh, uh, um, strand of argument um, among um, uh, uh, many who, who celebrate um, uh, private citizens' use of force that um, the, the private right to do violence in the United States is, at least uh, some of the time, a right to do violence against the state itself, you know, a kind of resistance. Um, uh, um, uh, you think about, you know, say, the, the armed protesters um, at state capitals resisting um, uh, or protesting uh, um, mask orders or lockdowns. Um, so, um, Yes, I mean, I think I think maybe we can sort of talk about you know whether there would be paths to restore or create um, a monopoly of legitimate violence in the United States. Um, might be something we could try to achieve, but I'm not sure that it is something that um, uh, that we have right right at this moment. Thanks, and so that kind of brings us full circle back um, to Professor Miller, um, kind of one at the beginning of this distinction between private and public violence. And I want to ask, you know, one thing it's hard to ignore in, in looking at some recent shootings where there was private violence, including Ahmaud Arbery and the shooting in Kenosha, um, they were done by either former or aspiring law enforcement. Does that confirm that there's this law enforcement style of violence that's going to be privatized if the role of police is minimized or limited? Um, or does the fact that in both of these instances, the shooter was arrested and charged as opposed to law enforcement officers who've been in, involved in some, in some, in some violence, um, does that suggest that the law, uh, you know, at least as it stands right now with qualified immunity and the like, is better able to respond to shootings perpetrated by private citizens? In other words, is the outlook better when it's private violence than public violence? Because 
contrary to what we might think, we might maybe have better accountability mechanisms over private violence. Uh, so, you know, I, I think I'll take the question in sort of two parts. There's the, there's the sort of accountability mechanisms um, that are um, that are imperiled, I think, by the um, um, the scenario with Ahmad Arbery, um, and in, in some uh, some extent also uh, the Rittenhouse case in Kenosha, uh, and then there is also the um, what do we do about it, and what is the best uh, sort of social policy intervention? Uh, is it sort of criminal prosecution or not? So let me take the first point. Uh, Drawing on the remarks that I made before, uh, one of the issues here uh, that must be understood is like the, the idea that private citizens and especially private uh, white citizens would have some sort of presumptive authority to police um, communities of color uh, draws upon a very deep and poisoned well in American history. So when the Ku Klux Klan is prosecuted in the um, uh, late 1800s uh, for going night riding, they uh, assert self-defense rights. They say that what they're doing is simply engaging in an ancient function of community policing. Um, when um, Carl Schurz goes to the South right after the Civil War, he says the last thing you want to do is not have a, a centralized, professionalized police department, because if you allow the um, sort of spontaneous community policing to go on, you are essentially going to be consigning the Black population of the South to a permanent uh, martial law where every white is empowered to uh, police every uh, Black person there. So when we're talking about this, we are uh, dealing with a really fraught, racially charged subject. Um, and, and I think one of the concerns is, you know, about the mechanisms is some of that has been ameliorated in the modern um, democracy because you have, you know, uh, black mayors, you have black police uh, captains, um, you have uh, requirements about integrating police departments. And so, uh, and when they, uh, when they misbehave, they can be called to account by uh, the political branches. Nobody controls um, a self-appointed uh, community uh, policemen. Um, when they behave badly, they can't be forced to wear cameras. Uh, and this goes to the second part, which is, yes, you can certainly prosecute somebody um, like um, uh, in the uh, Arbery case, um, but that doesn't solve the problem. Nobody want. I mean, that might resolve it, but that doesn't prevent it. Um, and to the extent that what you really want to do is try to have policing as an activity be more equitable and prevent the violence um, than the structures of, for example, um, you know, rehabilitating police departments through um, injunctive relief and things uh, just aren't available in uh, those kind of scenarios. So uh, my sense is that the criminal prosecution portion um, is, um, you know, a, a, a day late and a dollar short. Uh, because the violence has already occurred. What you want to do is try to prevent the violence. All right, thank you. Um, and Professor Chavis, just to carry forward this idea of accountability, I'm wondering how you think the ubiquity of firearms, privately owned firearms in the United States, how does that influence, if at all, um, both policing, so strategies and tactics, and the way that courts respond to policing through doctrines like qualified immunity. Interested in if you think there is an, a, kind of a, an effect there, um, and then also what that might mean for reform. So you hinted earlier about um, some other ways um, besides transparency, but how does the ubiquity of firearms affect policing, court strategies, and maybe ways for reform? Right. So I think there are um, a couple of different uh, questions uh, there, and I take them uh, separately. First of all, when we think about the doctrine of qualified immunity, and Professor Miller has talked, you know, a little bit about that. But this is a judicially created doctrine. Um, the underlying rationale is that uh, you know we don't want to chill 
uh, overly chill the uh, impact of what uh, police officers, government officials, in this case, police officers, what they're doing uh, in the field. So the doctrine acts as a shield um, to protect them from suit um, where there is, and this is what's important, where there is a clearly established uh, right. Uh, and um, it can be very difficult uh, for a police officer in the field to figure out whether they are violating, uh, well, it shouldn't be uh, difficult to figure out whether you're violating a clearly established right, but we've seen lots of really kind of uh, perverse, um, uh, 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 perverse um, uh, instances in, in, in the case law. Um, I personally, and so we hear a lot now about, oh, we should, um, you know, uh, truncate this uh, doctrine of qualified uh, immunity. I think that um, that that there there is some merit to that, um, but whether I think it's going to be uh, particularly a particularly good uh, reform to actually impact uh, police accountability, I'm not sure. It's still a what I call a backward-looking reform. You can only have. Uh, this after uh, you, you get qualified immunity only after the behavior has occurred only after you know a police officer has shot or killed uh, injured uh, someone and so I think that we need to be while we can focus on that and and there is there's room there I think that um, our reforms should be more forward-looking and thinking about how do we actually prevent the violence in the first place and it's just not um, I don't think that there's a clear enough nexus there, uh, or at least we need, you know, more more research on this um, to think about um, whether or not the that qualified immunity or lifting qualified immunity would um, uh, would in, uh, would have us have more um, police uh, accountability, uh, but uh, or or more. Um, successful um, suits, less deaths, right? That's what we, we, I think what we all want is, you know, less deaths at the hands um, of the police, less unjustifiable deaths. So um, I'm not sure that's related to the ubiquitousness of firearms. We do have um, a tradition in uh, our country that goes uh, back to the founding um, about uh, having firearms. But what we also know is that fire, that, that, uh, treatment, um, we've seen some disparate uh, treatment as it's applied um, when when race comes into account. And so I can give anecdotal um, accounts of uh, what, you know, Kyle uh, Rittenhouse walking down the street with a long gun uh, and receiving praise from officers and then uh, Philando Castile or, or at least in Kenosha, Jacob Blake not having um, a visible uh, weapon uh, at all and the fate um, that he met. Um, I also think when we think about training, um, law enforcement officers are trained in, in states where, um, I, I know, for example, you know, in North Carolina, if you have you know, concealed carry, officers are trained with how to approach any citizen that could be carrying a firearm. This is, um, it is very much um, a part of, uh, of our, our country and what police officers uh, know. It's just that, um, quite frankly, um, different races are treated, seem to be treated uh, differently. Philando Castile, there was nothing more, and this is um, in, um, uh, in Minnesota, again, um, or, I'm sorry, there's so many cases <laughs> that they, they tend to, to bleed together, but um, it, with Philando Castile, there's nothing else that he could have done to, to tell that officer, you know, yes, I'm, I'm legally uh, allowed to carry it. I do have it um, before the officer, you know, shot him to death in front of his kids. So uh, in front of his child. So I think that oh, we really have to have a reckoning with, um, yes, uh, firearms do play um, a part in um, in officers and how they react, but there's something more there. There's something uh, yet uh, we know that uh, it's different when you happen to be um, a black male versus a, a white male. And we can go on with the different examples of uh, Dylan Ruth being taken. Um, this is he shot nine people at um, Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina, and he was. Ta again, taken um, alive, um, and yet we have um, so many people that um, are 
uh, killed. Uh, it's almost a, a shoot first, ask questions later um, when we have a racial minority uh, involved. So there's some stereotyping and, and things that are that are happening. Great, thanks. Um, and turning to you, Professor Schrader, um, and and maybe kind of again abstracting from this point of training and background and context and experiences of police forces and law enforcement. Your book forces us to think about how the role and the firepower of U.S. police forces um, were really shaped by the perceived need to respond to military and civilian counterinsurgencies, sort of an intertwining of domestic and foreign policy, maybe encapsulated by the Office of Public Safety. Um, but maybe there's also a story about the relationship between public a state-sponsored state, um, and private, like corporate or individual forces. You know, OPS shut down in 1974. Is there a similar organization group? Are there private actors who are fulfilling that role today? Yeah, absolutely. So the book, as you said, it focuses on the Office of Public Safety, which was the overseas police assistance and training arm of the U.S. government, um, which operated you know, at the height of the Cold War and was shut down by Congress in 1974, 1975 amid accusations of human rights violations. Um, in, in my work, as, as well as the, the work of, of Nicole Siegel from Indiana University, um, what, what becomes clear is that the private security sector really dramatically begins to expand in the middle of the 1970s. And that private security sector is really at the, the intersection of foreign and domestic policy. And when the Office of Public Safety closed, a number of its, its advisors, police advisors who were stationed overseas, they basically keep doing the work that they're doing by founding private companies or, or going to work for, for, for private companies. And, um, you know, as an example, there, there's a company called Vanel Arabia that, that is operating to this day in Saudi Arabia, training the, the National Guard there. This firm um, got its start with Office of Public Safety advisors who, when Congress shut them down, they basically just stayed on the job in, in Saudi Arabia. And instead of being U.S. government employees, now they became private employees and um, the, the paychecks they were receiving were probably a lot larger um, as soon as they became private employees. And the idea um, was not only to continue this work uh, of, of, of training and assisting police overseas, it was also to expand its, its, its scope. But in addition, this was a moment in the 1970s of congressional, uh, increasing congressional oversight increasing congressional control over the um, operations of, of the U.S. national security state, investigations into the CIA, and so on and so forth. So the Office of Public Safety was closed down, and these private firms emerge to keep doing its work precisely outside the oversight and accountability mechanisms of Congress. And this private security sector, of course, has just dramatically grown um, in the decades since the 1970s. And it remains largely um, outside the, the, the control of, of Congress, even as it is fully dependent on, on the federal government for its revenue streams. And, it, and because it's outside the control of, of Congress, because uh, you know, the Freedom of Information Act doesn't apply to private security firms, it's very hard to know exactly how they work, how they operate. For me, writing my book about the Office of Public Safety, I was able to use public records that anybody can look at um, you know, in, in the National Archives. If I were to try to follow the story forward past the middle of the 1970s, because of course the story does continue, it becomes much more difficult simply because these private firms are, are at the center and they don't make their uh, archives available to researchers most frequently. Thanks. Um, and Professor Ristroff, to kind of return to a theme that we spoke about earlier, um, some theorists like Malcolm Thornburn have analyzed the private use of violence as stemming from a, a delegation of authority from some higher level of political organization like the state. So maybe we think, we might think that the state's monopoly of violence still holds if it's authorizing private violence, 
And I'm wondering kind of what are your thoughts of this theory with respect to your own understanding of a political theory of violence? So I think that question, you know, kind of um, pulls together or uh, uh, returns to the sort of um, uh, line we've been drawing between public violence and private violence, you know, uh, acts, uh, use of weapons, shootings, or other um, acts of uh, physical force by government officials um, versus um, acts of physical violence by private um, officials. And without um, disputing the, the importance of, um, you know, sort of careful thinking uh, about whether uh, uh, violence is coming from a government official or from a private um, individual. Um, I would um, say I think that um, there are kind of two other inquiries about violence that are um, really important to the conversation and important especially to thinking about um, the moment this country is in right now um, with um, uh, frightening levels of violence and um, uh, 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 patterns of racialized violence, which are not unique to this moment, but I think are um, uh, capturing public attention um, uh, perhaps more than usual at this moment. Um, so the two other things, so you know, one, one question you might ask about um, acts of violence is a sort of public-private question. So that a government official who might be subject to mechanisms of accountability that Daryl, um, uh, Professor Miller was talking about earlier, or is it a private uh, 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 individual using violence, there's public-private, but then I think there's also important questions about, first of all, just the total amount of violence. How much overall are people shooting at each other or exercising physical force um, against one another? Um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's an important consideration. And then there are questions about the distribution of violence. Um, and not just the distribution of violence, we're doing this in two ways, who's on the receiving end, um, are acts of force sort of uh, spread around equally um, uh, so that uh, the targets are uh, uh, evenly distributed across different racial groups or across different segments of society. Um, you can also think of the distribution of violence in terms of the distribution of, of the power to do violence. Is it something that's concentrated in, only in public officials or only in a few private individuals or is it something that is widely um, dispersed? Um, so I think about I think those, those questions, the total amount and the distribution are really important to, to add into the conversation here. You know, I think there's an argument that, um, you know, since, you, uh, since we were talking about this idea of the state having a monopoly on legitimate violence, there's an argument, um, not necessarily one that I am convinced by, but there's an argument that by breaking up the state's monopoly on legitimate violence by having armed citizens, for example, um, you are going to reduce the overall amount of violence, that you're going to have a less oppressive state. And you think this is, you know, one defense, uh, one argument in favor of the Second Amendment is you're going to have a less oppressive state, you're going to have a state and public officials who use less violence overall um, if they know they don't have a monopoly on it. Um, uh, um, there's also, I think, a, a distributive argument that, um, again, if the state doesn't have a monopoly on violence, then um, uh, uh, the, the power to do violence and the risk of suffering violence are going to be distributed in a more egalitarian way um, rather than uh, concentrated. I think that the reality in the United States has been very, very different, that um, uh, having a uh, having protections for private uh, legal protections for private acts of violence has um, radically increased the overall amount of violence, and it's also played out in certain distributive patterns that Professor Chavis was uh, mentioning earlier. I mean, there's definitely a um, uh, a racial uh, dynamic to the um, kinds of arms bearing that are um, most, um, most recognized, um, uh, are most endorsed by, by law, um, uh, and those that are seen as criminal. I mean, I, I just have to say, I just came here uh, to, to the webinar from uh, 
teaching criminal procedure and, and thinking about um, the Fourth Amendment's uh, 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 attitudes toward public and private violence. Um, the Fourth Amendment sees um, our, our constitutional doctrine in um, addressing the powers of police officers. It sees um, the presence of guns in private hands uh, as a uh, grounds for expanding uh, public, the public authority to use violence for uh, grounds for expanding police power. The police are sort of authorized to do many things because the person that they interact with might have, um, might have a gun, might uh, uh, be prepared to injure them. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can sort of dig into particular areas of doctrine and really see how much in this country here, um, the uh, decision to um, uh, kind of disperse violence or just, you know, give rights to use violence uh, to private individuals, it has, um, it hasn't constrained the state's power to do violence. If anything, it's expanded it by um, generating a law that gives police officer um, police officers greater powers than they might have if we didn't have an armed uh, citizenry. Thank you. That, re that reminds me of kind of the debates about whether um, for purposes of a stop, if someone's armed and dangerous or if they're armed and therefore dangerous and the debates that we're having as more and more public carry becomes more and more widespread about how that might be changing some, some constitutional doctrines. So I want to leave some time um, if there are audience um, questions. So if you have questions, feel free to pop them into the Q&A chat now. I've got a, a couple more and we'll be monitoring the Q&A chat if you do have questions. Um, so Professor Miller, one more for you while we're seeing if we have other ones coming in through the chat here. You argued in a recent Washington Post op-ed this week um, that we shouldn't allow armed groups like militias, um, private militias at least, to become normalized. Um, and I'm wondering, how can we prevent that? Is it, is it legal rules um, prohibiting armed assembly? Is it counter protests? Who has the standing to challenge or change or defend those, those relevant norms? Right. Uh, I mean, that's a really, really difficult question uh, and a really good one. Um, and I suppose that it's a combination of all those things, right? Um, we have a difficult time sort of figuring out the directional arrow of, um, you know, norms to laws and laws to norms. Um, and laws have a way of sort of uh, affecting norms and vice versa. I uh, My sense is that, um, you know, it needs to be seen as an aberration uh, just among people's sense of rectitude uh, to be showing up to political rallies with firearms. I mean, it just, that would help sort of reduce the tension. Um, that's why, for example, you know, the appeals uh, to um, peaceful protest, uh, Martin Luther King is so important because to the, to the extent that he um, is seen as um, the model of how to go about doing profound social change uh, without um, the threat of violence. Um, to the extent that he's the hero of that kind of political dynamism, uh, we need to recapture that as a matter of our sort of political discourse and our norms. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for law as well, you know, to the extent that laws can say, you know, um, a public carry, um, you know, in big groups needs to be licensed or it needs to be um, um, checked out ahead of time or you need to have a permit or something like that. That would help um, um, prevent what could be a really dangerous cascade of, um, oh, well, I know that this group is going to show up in the public square with guns and therefore I'm going to show up with guns as well. And that's a, um, that's a cycle that we don't want to get into. I just want to mention um, really uh, briefly, um, I think something that Professor Ristroff was saying that I think connects with Professor Schrader, which is, a, a, I think, an astute observation that 
the fact that we have a proliferation of guns in private hands tends to escalate um, um, the justifications for use of violence by state actors. And as Professor Schrader probably notes, it, it knows um, that goes not only for like Fourth Amendment stops and frisks and other kinds of violence, but probably even the equipment that people have. That is, if I am a police officer and I know that the people that I um, need to investigate for crimes might be armed with weapons that can penetrate body armor, that is going to lead me to want to have some kind of protection uh, that will uh, escalate. And what we don't want is some kind of arms race between um, you know, private uh, uh, private weaponry and, and public weaponry. Thanks. And, and so, Professor Chavis, let me ask you, you've recently written about um, a kind of critiquing stand your ground laws. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about why these laws, which are written in race neutral terms, why are they um, a special risk to black lives? Yes. Yeah, so when we think about, you know, stand your ground laws and, um, and this is like, you know, first, first year criminal law where we've talked about self-defense and usually uh, under the common law, there's a, you know, duty, duty to retreat. And so what these laws do is they allow you to use when faced with danger, allow you to use deadly force without retreating. And what we've seen um, is, you know, and we can look at like, the, the case of Ahmad, Ar Ahmad Arbery, um, it, it really kind of gives um, an excuse for, uh, it can give an excuse for vigilantes to, um, to act on their own biases. Well, what makes you think you, someone was dangerous or why did you feel threatened in, in that way? And even though uh, we know that, that, that it, it was not a defense in the Ahmad Arbery case, I do believe there was a slight delay because it allowed uh, some, you know, the authorities to, to begin thinking, okay, you know, could this have been? Um, so even though these laws are written in race neutral terms, we um, should be, um, I think I'm a, a very big proponent of thinking about um, any types of, of legislation when we think about it in the criminal uh, justice space, uh, what is the racial impact uh, of, of that law? And I think there, there are some questions um, we need to answer, uh, you know, stand your ground laws, um, it, it, again, backed by uh, the, the, the gun lobby and, um, and nearly 30 31 states, something like that, have uh, these uh, these laws. Um, you know, it's it's meant to um, to protect yourself from some type of violence. But I think what what we're finding is that it actually escalates violence and um, people because they don't have the need to de-escalate. So um, that's something to think about. But uh, I think that we need further study um, on, I mean, because there are some conflicting, you know, dueling studies on whether or not um, these laws are actually, um, uh, whether or not they, they impact um, Blacks differently than whites. And so I think one good question to ask is um, if we uh, did justifiable homicide by Black defenders uh, increase remain the same or decrease after the enactment of some of these stand your ground laws. And so there have been um, some studies on that, but it's, there's conflicting evidence. I, I just think that in the moment that we're in and, and what we're seeing play out uh, on our, our city streets, we have um, lots of, of, of folks who are, you know, say they want to, you know, defend their right to be there. And uh, it really gives an excuse to escalate violence rather than de-escalate uh, violence and uh, promote the sanctity of human life. Thanks. And let me let me go to one of our um, one of our questions then, and it's for the panel in general. And it says, "I realize there's no silver bullet, but if you could have one reform to address this complex problem, what would have the biggest effect?" And if I could add an addendum, um, do you think the best level of government to respond is? state, local, or federal, or the best level of government to seek reforms in. So I'll open that up to the panel if someone wants to hop in on that. Well, well I, I'll hop in just on, um, you know, there are lots of different levers that we could pull at the federal, state, and local. The federal uh, government actually has the ability 
um, to the, the Attorney General, the United States Attorney General has the ability to uh, seek injunctive relief um, in, in, in uh, cities that are showing, police departments that are showing um, a pattern or practice of unconstitutional violations. Um, that is only uh, one authority and they have uh, limited resources. But what I was going back to what I was saying earlier is that they actually have the ability to change the culture, uh, to enact policies that would change the culture inside the police department that would in theory prevent uh, more uh, of, these, of these deaths. And that the reform is really wide reaching in terms of the transparency that I was talking about, record keeping, but also changing uh, your use of force standards, which is something we, we have to do. We're not going to uh, solve uh, the issues unless we really take a look at the use of force. But where I think um, the strongest lever is, is in, in my opinion, it is absolutely at the local level. The local levels, uh, and we've seen this uh, in recent months, have the ability to, very, to move very quickly uh, with reforms uh, within their police depart departments uh, in terms of that use of force standard and how or whether um, a, a particular officer is going to be uh, prosecuted and different changes that they can make. So I think that our local communities here uh, have the power and that we, while the federal government should be there um, as a backstop and has really good, um, there's some really good uh, resources and things uh, that we can do. Uh, I think our local communities can uh, and have to act. So um, I think I would agree with everything that President uh, Chavez has said. Um, you know, I, I, I'm working uh, with um, uh, my former uh, law school classmate uh, and friend, um, uh, Professor Hugandas, on a piece about um, uh, city uh, cities and guns and 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 uh, the city's rights uh, about guns decisional autonomy <clears throat> and I think it applies to both policing and guns that is to the extent that you have a representative body in a city who says this is the kind of policing that we want to have for our own community and to the extent that they also have some kind of decisional autonomy to prevent um, people from outside the community coming in and saying, oh, well, since you don't have a police department or a police department that we think is the one that we would like, we are going to privately decide to police you. Um, I think it, it, you know, I think that um, devolving those kinds of decisions um, to the actual city would make sense. Now, this is not going to go in one direction. You might end up with cities that um, just like guns a lot. And, um, but to the extent that they are um, territorially bounded um, and don't have the same kind of spillovers as, as other kinds of um, um, arrangements, um, then, you know, people that want a certain type of policing, a certain type of gun culture will go to those uh, places, and people that want another kind of policing and another kind of gun cultures will go elsewhere um, within, you know, certain constitutional parameters that, you know, everybody here sort of understands, but I think that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. All right, so let me go to one more um, question here. I think it'll probably be our, our last question. And this one is for Professor Schreiber or anybody else in the panel. Um, and it says, another way that police might, even if inadvertently, encourage a kind of domestic militarization is by encouraging private citizens to think of themselves as law enforcement officers um, and to bring powerful weapons to scenes of perceived lawlessness. Even as a teenager, Kyle Rittenhouse found ways to be involved with local law enforcement, even involved, including through a cadet program. Any idea how widespread these programs are and how can or should police build links to communities without encouraging armed vigilantism? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And it's it's not something that I've specifically looked at, but but I, you know, just to, to pick up on what Professor Miller was saying earlier, I think it's absolutely true that. We are living through an arms race between private actors and, and police. And um, there's just no question for me that, that this arms race needs to be ended. Um, how, how that happens, of course, is like a very complicated and challenging question. Um, to the extent that, that police are, are encouraging the um, types, types of, of behaviors that, that we're seeing among people who self-style themselves as, as militias, 
um, this is this is really worrisome and and frightening. And I and I think that many people who are suddenly realizing that this is happening after the the Kyle Rittenhouse's uh, shooting. Um, you know, should should be encouraged to, to to note that this has been happening for 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 some time. You know, this did not just emerge in the past couple of years. There's a long history to this. Of course, you know, in, in in many ways it goes back centuries. But but at the very least, I do think we can look to the um, radicalization of um, white power activists since the um, 1970s and 80s. And, and there, there is a, a direct influence of um, military models, military behaviors, military styles of dress. I mean, you know, Rittenhouse himself was, was really dressed as if he were a special operations soldier overseas. Um, I think that's very conscious. So th this, th the context for this is, is, is something that I think we, we, we can talk about um, and, and identify and, and in fact locate both within police departments, but also beyond police departments. Ultimately, the, the, these questions cannot be answered um, solely by, by addressing policing. They're, they're, of course, as everybody on this panel has suggested, they're questions that require a, a much broader um, social, political, and, and legal you know, conversation. Anyone else have, have thoughts on kind of that particular tension with police trying to build ties to the community without kind of encouraging a mimic what we do and go police your own neighborhoods with powerful weapons. Anyone else have thoughts on, on that particular question or any other kind of final parting thoughts? Could I just uh, throw one thing out? And this question about, um, uh, you know, sort of state officials kind of um, cultivating assistance, you know, informal deputies among um, private actors. Um, as, uh, um, as Professor Schreier said, I mean, it's, um, it, it has a long history. It's not a, it's not a novel development. Um, one piece of the history that just popped into my mind when um, Professor Schreier was speaking just now um, was, um, uh, you know, the, the practice of of slave patrols, which has got, you know, I think a sort of a, a bit more attention in, uh, in recent months and sort of drawing the connection of that to modern policing. I think one um, aspect, one historical aspect of that, um, uh, of that practice that's uh, interesting and, and, and important to this, this discussion we're having right now about uh, private individuals is that um, many uh, uh, individuals who were, um, Sort of conscripted or are um, asked to serve in slave patrols were poor whites who did not themselves own slaves, um, uh, but they were you know sort of asked to participate in this um, uh, patrolling function to um, uh, to watch for runaways to make sure that slaves did not arm themselves. Um, uh, and and um, but the people who were asked to do it were not you know were not themselves um, uh, necessarily slave owners, um, and I think you know folks have written about that dynamic as a way in which um, sort of um, uh, um, asking impoverished uh, whites or at least whites who are too poor to own slaves themselves asking them to sort of participate in um, uh, um, uh, in managing the slave population was a way of not just preserving slavery or maintaining slavery, but was a way of managing class conflict or trying to, um, you know, prevent uh, um, uh, uh, class objections um, from um, from from the poor whites who didn't um, enjoy all the material benefits of uh, of slavery. Um, and so I do think that you know um, when we sort of think of um, uh, uh, government officials um, uh, 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 sort of embracing um, private um, private actors' um, uh, uh, use of violence, or saying, "You know, help us out in this way." Um, I think it's worth pursuing class dynamics as well, and seeing, you know, is this a way of um, managing uh, uh, class tensions and sort of uh, using aggravating racial tensions to um, uh, deflect away from uh, uh, potential class tensions. Okay, well, that is a 
good if sad uh, note to end us on today. Um, so thank you to all of the panelists for being here for this really important discussion. Thanks to all of you for joining us um, at home or wherever you are. Um, special thanks to Teresa Voice and Isabel Fox for helping out behind the scenes and everyone else who helped out making this event possible. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Um, you can email the center and visit the center's website and follow us on Twitter for more commentary on guns in America. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web at law.duke.edu.